All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Questlove Supreme. I am your host, Questlove. We have Team Supreme with us today. Uh, Laia, how are you? Fast. Uh, good. I'm good. I'm excited about this episode. I'm good. I like Wait, Laia, are these the same glasses you always wear? I always feel like you have a new pair of glasses on every time I see you. No, I got like four or five different moves. You know, this is the pink oh, okay. and gold because I'm feeling pink. Like money now. Okay. I see. I see. Lord. <laughs> Where the money reside, where the money money reside. reside, reside. (laughs) (laughs) So your stimmy came through? Nice, nice, nice. (laughs) (laughs) The stimmy's right. I only got the $600 one. I'm waiting for $14. I'm waiting for $14. I see. Uh, Sugar Steve, what's up, man? Uh, Nothing. That's great to know, Sugar Steve. I I appreciate that. Uh, Unpaid Bill? Man, everything is good. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you are fasting. Uh, no, I'm not fasting. <laughs> oh. Thank you for pointing out my lack of religious fervor. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. He's uh, just not I, drinking. I'm just uh, not okay. drinking. Today. So that's the same thing as sort of fasting. Today. Today. Fontigolo? I'm chilling, man. I'm chilling, man. I've been looking forward for this one. I'm a big Terrence Blanchard fan. So yes. this is, uh, I've been waiting on this one, man, for real. You yes. just gave away who the guest is, but well, that's good. That makes my <laughs> intro way. That makes okay. my intro way shorter. Our our guest today is a renowned uh, composer, musician, trumpeter, uh, one time member of the uh, Lionel Hampton Orchestra and the world famous uh, Art Blakey Jazz Messengers. Uh, not to mention uh, composer of two well received operas, uh, but it's his near thirty year association. With the great Oscar winner. I'm sorry. I, I was like, Spike Lee winner? Finally. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Uh, with, with Oscar uh, winner, Spike Lee, his association with him for the last 30 years is probably, in my opinion, probably one of the, uh, the best combo of film score and director oh, thank um, you. that I know for real. In, in, in cinema yeah. history. And that's just not blowing smoke 
Uh, he's up for his second Oscar nomination uh, for scoring. Duh. Yes. Five Bloods. Duh. Um, yep. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Quest Love Supreme, the great Terrence Blanchard. How are you? Yes. Good, man. What's happening? How you guys doing? Doing Fantastic. good, brother. Good to see you yeah. again, man. We we met like years ago at the Grammys. This is probably like 2010. Uh, my group, The Point Exchange, was nominated, and we uh-huh. met at like the little dinner or whatever. And oh, yeah. you were still you were one of the coolest dudes there, man. Like you were just super chill, and um, everyone else. I remember a lot of those people. They were kind of I don't know whatever, but you were just super down to earth, and I always remember that. Very hoity toity, but you was folk. So I no, really appreciate that, man. Appreciate Wait, that, man. can I can I ask a question, Fonte? What's up? Uh, wait, the Grammys throws. They throw dinners? <laughs> well, it's after the joint. So, like, yep. so at the time when I went, the one and only time I went, because I ain't, I don't really need to do that shit no more. So, the uh, time, it was in the Staples Center, and, like, yeah. it was, they have the pre-tell little like dinner. Thing. Yeah. The yeah, yeah. The governor's dinner. You, oh, the man, go- you, uh, you, you I was about to feel some stuff. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. Like, yeah. Okay, the governor's, okay, that, okay, that, that makes sense. I, I yeah. thought oh, the governor's was the like, Oscars. I'm sorry, you're right, Terrence. Yeah. Nomination dinner thing that I never knew about, and I've been in this joint for twenty years. And but they should make a documentary about the pre awards because in that room is like the yeah. Tejano guys, yeah. the, the people with the best liner notes. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> like it's the fucking craziest room you've ever been in. I met Amy Mann in that room, and she was just like right. chilling. She got nominated for best liner notes. We we're like, what'd you get nominated what? for? She's like, best liner notes. I was like, yeah. that's not a thing. And she was like, it is a thing. It's totally a thing. And that was the first time I met Jimmy Jam because he handed me my Grammy, best right. day ever. You know, Bill. you know what's funny about you saying that, man? I've been going to the Grammys a number of years, and I remember when the pre-show was just that, man. It was a pre-show. Not too many people mm-hmm. went. But now it's like the hang, dude. Yeah, it's an event. It's, mm-hmm. it's when the and real the, musicians the, go. And yeah, like right. people get fully mm-hmm. dressed up, like, and it's like two in the afternoon, and you're right. like fully in right. your thing. I and would like, want to. The Tejano guys are in like bright red. They're ready to go. Like everybody's ready to go. <laughs> bright red. Right? Yeah. Like <laughs> wait. Yeah. It's, Bill, it's I awesome. was gonna say. I was gonna say that in my maybe six times that I've done that, I always wind up sitting. Uh, in the Latin section, and that's what he's and saying. I was going to say <laughs> that the the snark and energy that that section has. They're the happiest. every time Jose Feliciano wins their award. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, level, I mean, only it's be better one. now. It's better now, but <laughs> there was a point where, like, I I by my fourth year, I was like, I I couldn't wait. I was looking forward to just sitting. In the Latin section, so I could hear them all get mad because, you know, Again. sometimes when you, well, the, the the voting system is way different now. But there was a point where everyone had access to everyone's category, mm. and this ah. like before 2010. And you just vote for the name you know. So in the Latin section, it's like, oh, I know Felice Navidad, oh, I know Jose Feliciano, so let me vote for him. And that's how he would like. 20 years in a row just win that category meanwhile like the most popular artist of that genre just like he didn't even know he put out a record that year he just he had no idea he just no he definitely had no idea no he didn't (laughs) um where you where are you right now terrence i'm in new orleans man i mean i've I've moved to la you know because i'm teaching at ucla but um you know my home is not really ready yet and i needed to work and begin at the beginning of the pandemic man i just came back home i came back home Okay. I've been here for a year. I'm going anywhere. Okay. That's what's up. Wait, I'm I'm glad you mentioned New Orleans. Um, so I will say that uh, the last time that a musical giant from New Orleans 
was on our show, which was Branford Marcellus. Mm. Um, if you know him, you already know what I'm about to say is true. No one loves to deflate the air out of any uh, jazz wow. urban legend balloons <laughs> wow, yeah. that I fantasize about more than Branford. So, like every everything that uh, you know, everything that I tried to romanticize over, like what I thought music and jazz and, and musicianship was, like he would just. <laughs> gleefully deflate that no that wasn't you know and my boy you know and i think i always mess with him i said man you must have failed debate class in high school (laughs) (laughs) you trying to make up for it now you know what i mean yeah (laughs) yeah so i was saying but basically the the one thing that he totally deflated my balloon on Uh was this notion that i was fed when i was a kid about obsessively practicing mm. and you know it, it, I, I brought up a story about uh, the time when his brother won a Grammy mm. and thanked his dad for mm. like making me practice and da, da 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 so you know I I grew up with this thing where my dad was like yo five to ten hours da, 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 practice 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 like you know straight backstage dad stuff right and you know, for the record, I'll I'll say that David Murray is probably the only jazz figure that I met mm-hmm. uh, that has lived up to that myth where he told me like he practices eight to ten hours a day mm-hmm. with his ex. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm just this is my first question. I'm just asking from sure. the gate: is is the notion uh, of the obsessive musician waking up at five a.m. and practicing the scales and and exercise and going till nine p.m. like before a gig? Is that just some myth? That's been planted in my head that was never real, you know, just to keep me off the streets by my dad or. But he'd be single and don't have kids. (laughs) (laughs) For real, for real. You heard. No, 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 man. Look, I get up early and I do get to work. I mean, I'll come in here and I'll start working because my studio is kind of separate from the house so I can make some noise and I disturb people. Mm-hmm. But it depends on it depends on what you're dealing with at the time, man. There are moments where I get up and I practice all day because I know that I'm trying to get in shape to do certain things, you know. Mm-hmm. And then with my career, since I'm composing a lot, man, there are moments when I'm just sitting in here writing. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I had to do some rewrites for the opera. I'm sitting here working on a television show right now, and I'm getting ready to start working on a film. And, uh, you know, so I, this is where I spend a lot of my time. I think the more I think the most important thing about it all, bro, is just to figure out what's the best way for you to be effective. Because you can sit down and practice for five hours, bro, but if you ain't really focused and you're not paying yeah. attention, you know And if you're not applying it the right way. No, thirty minutes will do you a lot better. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If thirty minutes are like really focused and you really uh-huh. trying to accomplish something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, someone I mean, told I'm me to look, practice what I don't know, which Well, there's I, a theory behind that, yeah. But what about muscle memory? What about, you know, um, whenever you see someone practicing in a movie, or in, uh, I, I already hear the answer in my head, and it's real stupid. But whenever you see anyone, like, the, the, the myth of practicing is, like, they start their scales in C, and then they go up half note, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But is, it, is practicing muscle memory, or is it strictly just... Uh, exploring what you don't know. There's, a, there's two forms. There is the muscle memory part, but the thing about it, you try to build up that vocabulary to the point 
where you become flexible. So there are other aspects of practicing where it's all mental, where you try to send yourself in different directions and see if your body can respond. And if your body can't respond, that's when you go back to the muscle memory part to kind of really figure out, well, what is it that I'm not doing? Oh, it's this interval that's hanging me up. So let me come back here and work on this interval. You know what I mean? Until I get that muscle memory down in my brain, and then I could go back to doing the improvised stuff. Because the thing about it, bro, that I like it. This is what I tell my students, bro. It's like being, it's like being Kyrie Irving, bro. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Of course, he knows how to dribble, but man, does he really know what he's going to do when he's coming down on a fast break? You know what I mean? Right in the heat of the moment, but he has to have the skills to like execute anything that happens in his brain within a split second. You know, so that's what you're trying to achieve by practicing and and breaking it down into the various elements. Wow! See, Ooh, this, why this, Branford just say that to me. It's about to be a good class. It's about to be a good class. I'm always relating stuff to sports. You know what I mean? I ain't mad. I, I get it. As a matter so, of fact, my Pelicans are playing the Lakers right now, but I'm not looking at the screen. You might as well. <laughs> <It's all good>. <laughs> <laughs> we, we appreciate your attention. Thank you. Well, okay. So I do have a, a, a trumpet question, though, because the, sure. the amount of times that I've played with ser- serious trumpet players, Mm-hmm. And I always notice that usually, it, I mean, if they're 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 sort of going, you know, hard in the paint, if they'll usually tire out oh, in yeah. forty minutes, like they'll start hurt, holding their lip. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so can you explain that whole thing, Ooh. like the yeah, embouchure, embouchure, because sometimes yeah, well, the thing about embouchure, well, think about it like this, you know, you have a piece of metal that's pressed up against your lips other than like a reed instrument, right? I'm not taking anything away from reed instrument. I'm just talking about brass. Right. And it's a very strenuous thing to have that thing up against your lips and use these muscles, right, on both sides of, of uh, your embouchure. So, look, man, that's why that's another reason why you need to practice. You got to condition yourself. You have to get strong, you know, and it's there's, there's no way around that. That's the thing I try to tell my students, bro. They, Charlie Parker said it ain't magic. It just seems like it is. You know what I mean? Mm. So, I mean, the, the the that part, you have to just put in the time and effort to build up the muscles. And that's the thing like that's like scaring me to death right now because, man, I've been in pandemic mode. I've been sitting here chilling and writing, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I got some shows coming up, so I got to get back in, you know, practice mode and stuff to build back up so I can be in condition to play. For a so, show that you do, about how long would you say you play by yourself? What do you have to work up to? Oh, man, I'm, you know, the goal is always to try to build up to playing two hours. Wow. And that's impossible because, you know, you never really play two hours straight, but that's what, that's what you try to put in your mind. And mm-hmm. then when it comes time to do the show, listen, man, some of the old musicians bro, used to always, you know, pull my coat and stuff, you know, say, look, man, why you got to be the first cat to play the solo, bro? Let them dudes jump out there. You just played the melody. That's a very strenuous melody on your chops. You need to let him play and you take a break. Go on the side and look cool and just wait your turn. You know, <laughs> it's, like, it's little things like that, brother. Over the course of time, it really helps you to maintain. Because when you looked at Miles, man, you know, look, bro, Miles had it down. You know, Miles used to would play some crazy, mm-hmm. but he would stop, bro, and he would take a break. You know, and when he would take that break, it was doing two things. It was doing something musically, and it was also doing something physically. He was allowing himself to recover. 
Yeah, I um I was a trumpet player. I played trumpet like in like middle school, high school and stuff. And um so I would always go and watch um you know, I would just watch how they would keep that when you talk about the amateur and my band teacher would always say that it's like a muscle and you had to work it. And so a good friend of mine, Cy Smith, she's a singer and right. she's been touring before you know, prior to uh COVID and everything. She had been touring with Chris Bodie. And yeah. so and so I went and saw her at Bodie's show and Bodie, he does exactly what you're saying. Like he'll play a little bit and then he'll have a girl come out, play the violin. <laughs> then he'll play a little more. <laughs> then Sal sing. Yep. Then he'll play a little bit. You know what I mean? It's it's total like attack and release. Oh, so, so that's them preserving their chops. That's not just Hell them yeah. being oh, yeah. selectively. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. That's exclusive. People don't think, don't think that. I, they just think you're taking an artistic break. Well, it is both. I mean, it's both things. I mean, because... Part of it is, you know, it's it's ingrained in us because that's part of the orientation of what you what you've heard on all of the records that you've studied. You know what I mean? It's like Miles always know knew how to use space, so that's always a part of my thinking, just musically. But it but it serves two purposes. You know, it serves an artistic one and it also serves a physical one. So are there exercises? Do you guys? It's oh, funny yeah. oh yeah, there are a lot of exercises. There are things that I do. You know, to sit down and just, and it has nothing to do with music. It's just simply to strengthen these muscles. So, okay, I was going to say, how damaging is it to reach that, uh, okay, let's let's take a, a cat like uh, Menard, Menard, well, I was going to say Menard Ferguson. Uh, mm-hmm. okay. uh, like, Menard is, uh, you, you would know is the, the sample at the beginning of Lords of the Underground, Funky Child. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's Menard. That. That's Menard on a soft day. That's that's wow. like Menard. That's yeah. Menard playing Mary had a little lamb. So yep. he's just, right. you know, Menard is closer to like the Clayton Gunnels Rebel Without a Pause squeal, T squeal. Like he just plays in for the longest time. What what muscles or like what uh, powers have to be activated in order to? Consistently <laughs> hit that out the park because even even when playing with Doc Severinsen, who's yeah. well within his eighties now, he uh-huh. he goes from zero to, oh, to that's true one hundred. It's crazy! It's crazy watching him play, bro. If I knew that, bro, I'd be doing it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> okay, just, I'm glad you. It's, it's, it's just a different set of muscle groups. The interesting thing that I've always is a guy like that, and I think a lot of it has to do with the formulation here. I'm not, this is just me speculating. Mm-hmm. Because when you watch guys who have that high, high range, the the, the low register sounds a little different. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like fast. Those guys. And it's a, it's a mm-hmm. different, and it's a different approach. So, you know, for me, man, I've always been like Miles Davis, Clark Terry, Freddie Hubbard, Woody Shaw type of dude. You know, I like those nice round tones. When you, when you listen to Miles Davis playing that Porgy and Best record, bro, his tone is just immaculate and just... I've been hooked since I was 16 years old. <laughs> you know, I, that's back in the days when we used to have the full bar, you know, in our house that had like the flickering lights when you had the record player underneath. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. I have those. Oh, God, I just <laughs> aged myself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Come on in, yeah. bro. It's all good. It's all good. Come on in. Yes, I grew up with off And put on miles, man, and I would sit down in, the, in my room bro, in the front of the house and just listen to Miles Davis with those lights on all night long. Okay, so with okay, I'm glad you answered that question because sometimes I'll look at a at a musician 
mm-hmm. and kind of side eye them because I didn't realize that, you know, you need a certain amount of tone or or, or lungs to hit mm-hmm. certain things. I'm now so for drummers, you didn't notice Amir. I'm thinking people listen to this are gonna be shocked that you didn't know that either. Well, no, I mean sometimes I just feel like. In my head, my first thing is like, okay, are you just being psychosomatic right now? Like, wow, just play the note. Like, I'm just thinking that. Wow. But there is a part to that. You know what? There is. I mean, there's a mental side to it, man. There's a great classical trumpet player named Charlie Schluter. He played in Boston Pops for years. He's a good friend of mine, man. I was backstage before a show one night, and I was doing something. And um, when I went up to hit this high seat, I was playing for him. I missed it. And he goes, oh, man, stop thinking about it. You just work because I'm standing here. Just go ahead and do the thing. And when I when he <laughs> said that, the note came out just as clear as a bell. So there is a part of the psychological part of it. Mm. You know what I mean? It does play a role. In terms of, like, Dizzy, because he would always, you know, like, right. blow his cheeks out. And yeah. I remember as a um, as a kid when I would play, my band teacher would always say, like, you don't do that. Right, don't don't right, do right, that. Right. You know yeah. what I'm saying? We, right. all, so, heard, we all heard our <laughs> Fonte as kids trying to be Dizzy. <laughs> Yeah, he was like, nah, don't do that, Dane. What right, that's right. gonna mess you up. So what is it about um what is it about that that makes for I guess for bad playing or improper form? Well, you know what the thing about it, it was Dizzy was such a freaking nature, man. Because when you play the mm-hmm. trumpet, most people think you try to bring your lips backward. You don't want to do that because that creates a thin layer of skin, right? What you try mm-hmm. to do, you try to focus forward, right? And we try to do what we you try to create what we call a pucker. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, Dizzy, he blew all of the blood vessels in his cheeks. Right. Yeah. What you wow. mean? Yeah. And then after he did that, that's why his cheeks could expand. But when his oh. cheeks started to expand, what happened? He created a perfect pucker mm-hmm. on the mouthpiece because he had wow. no choice. Okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, inadvertently, it, started, it worked for him. You know what I mean? I don't. I don't suggest that. Nah, hey, I ain't trying to blow all the blood vessels in my cheeks. That shit don't sound fun. Yo, that's messed up. Nobody ever told us kids that. We would have stopped. Oh, man. (laughs) I wouldn't suggest that to anybody. No, no, no. So as a drummer, um, I know the the texture and tone preferences that I have Mm -hmm. when I judge or do my whatever 10-second judgment on, okay, Mm -hmm. they have a good sound, they have a good tone, da-da-da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. But how is that? How do you judge that for trumpet players? All right. So, so you mentioned Dizzy, and yeah. I'll give you a weird R and B example. Mm-hmm. So, you know, eighty one. When did uh, original music aquarium come out? Eighty one. All right. So I was ten years old mm-hmm. when Stevie Wonder's "Do I Do" comes oh, yeah. out, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, he does this big ass build up. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, blow! And then Dizzy sort of, in my mind, I'm thinking, damn, with that right. sort of introduction, I would expect Dizzy to come out the gate like Evil Knievel, like right. to live up to that thing. Instead, nope. he held back, and right. Right. I always wanted to, always wanted to know. And I, like, I know in my world, I've made a living out of less is more right, right. As, as much as i could hold back mm-hmm. i've made and that takes a lot of faith to not mm-hmm. want to show up and outdo drummers and you know let your yeah. ego start talking to you sure. but how do you so okay why would you in choosing uh porgy and best like what is it about that album that tells you like the tone is immaculate uh, and i'm assuming that you're speaking from a a jordan game six level of perfection like he's just 
hitting well, it's, it out the park. Yeah, it's a, it's a, well, listen, it's a, it's that perfect marriage between like tone and expression. Like it, for me, I prefer Miles because I love that tone, but I also love Dizzy and I also love a lot of other guys that had like a more edgy or sharper tone, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing about Miles that got me, bro, was, man, the dude say bo do do and just, you just got a whole bunch of information in those three notes, just the way he played it. And I think it's because he was so counter to everything else that was going on. Everybody else was trying to, like you said, prove how much they could play. And for him, it was really just about expressing, you know, the lyrics behind those, 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 those beautiful songs, you know, mm-hmm. and it just took, it just caught me, caught my attention from the time that I was like 15, 16 years old. And I've just been hooked ever since. Now, that's my first impression. Now, when you listen to Clifford Brown, Clifford Brown has a totally different type of sound. But mm-hmm. man, there's a thing that's connected to the way he's phrasing the notes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, 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 there's just an honesty and a purity about it, bro, that just hits me right in my soul. And I got to say this, bro, the same thing with you, bro. Look, man, with that snare drum sound, Bro, your snare drum sound, bro, had me jacked up for a long time. <laughs> yes. I, mean, I love yeah, it. Yeah, no, seriously. Seriously, man. <laughs> Thank you, like, man. Yeah, no, seriously, bro. It's like, you know, and then you sit down, you got to do a movie and stuff. You try to pull a groove, then it's like, damn, I ain't get that snare drum sound. <laughs> you know they have plugins that have like the you have quest love plugins right you know that those exist I yeah I, those I've, exist. I've heard I've like heard. if you want that snare there's like a plugin yeah that I, i've seen <laughs> i've seen wow yeah okay yeah. well track masters knows about it very well oh yeah, jesus christ it. right <laughs> so okay this this is the the i guess the perfect segue yeah now okay since you're talking about your fandom for miles davis in real time, discovering him at, at 14, 15. First of all, how old were you when you got serious about the trumpet? When I was about that age, you know, I, I had a trumpet from the time I was about in fourth grade in elementary school, man. But look, I I thought I was going to be an athlete. I thought I was going to play football. And, mm-hmm. you know, I went to one of those Bayou Classics, bro, and I saw Grandma's team come off the bus. That was it for me, bro. I was like, you big ass dude, follow me around. Dude. What position did you play? When I was playing little league, man, I played linebacker and I Not played. Not little league. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know what? <laughs> I you know. thought we were talking about high school at least ten. No, 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 no. By the time I got to high school, I already made that decision. I knew I wasn't gonna be as big as those dudes. I just knew it wasn't gonna happen. You know what I'm saying? So I was wow. Like, no, wow. so it was. I was about 14, 15, around that same time. And that was at the same time that I wound up going to the arts high school in New Orleans, New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts. And that's where my life changed, man, because it just introduced me to everything. You know, just Clifford Brown, Arne Coleman, everything. I just, I learned so much. That was the first time, man, I, I, I remember wanting to go to school every day. You know, I remember I got sick one day. And I had to catch myself. My mom said, boy, you should stay home. And I went, no, I got to go to school. I said, damn, did I really just say that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like that because I was learning so much, you know, every day. Okay. So I have, I have a Miles question for you. Yeah. Now, okay, I'll, I'll compare it or, or, or at least parallel it with, all right, let me, my North Star is Prince, so I'll, I'll say that. And mm-hmm. I, I irk Prince fans to this day because I will only hang on 
to 78 to 88. <laughs> and it'll irk them to death because it doesn't validate when they got hip to pro. Well, he made that in 1994 and da, 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 right, right. whatever. And to me, it's like, you know, I, I mean, every, everyone has a streak period. I mean, you can look at Stevie Wonder's discography and say, okay, this was his streak period. <laughs> so just now, because I, I more or less discovered miles in my twenties and way after the fact, like it's, it's yeah. different when on the corner is introduced to you as a masterpiece, right? As right. opposed to being around in '73 to hear, mm-hmm. right? So how we were even, two two uh, babies. We're two two babies. Bro, I'm yeah. two two baby. Yeah, well, you're a two yeah. two baby. I'm a two two baby because your age adjusts every episode. So, <laughs> <laughs> hey, all right, yeah. So you were baby in eight. <laughs> no, but I just mean like Absolutely. how were you, were you able to discern the difference between like what were your thoughts on like okay I I, I always clown a song like John, uh, I know I'm going to hell for this uh-huh. a song like Jean Pierre yeah which I I'm so not I'm so not a fan of Jean Pierre it's almost like showgirls like mm-hmm. I've made fun of that song so much that. Well, let me ask you this. Were you, you ever clown something so much that you like it, like a Stockholm Syndrome thing? Okay, but let me ask you this. Were you not a fan of it from the beginning or just because people, you know, ran it into the ground? Okay, so with with Miles' discography, I decided when I was going to get into him that I was going to go in chronological order. Okay, sure. And so, you yeah. know, so I started when I was 14, so I didn't even get to like we want miles and you're under arrest and all that stuff. I didn't get to there until I was in my twenties. And by then I had, you know, I ingested so much of classic miles that, and I I haven't read the books or none of that stuff. So I didn't even know about like what he was going through in his life. But for me, I was just like, "Eh, I guess this, this is okay. Like, I mean, I just gave him carte blanche for, Everything he does is magic and gold. But like, what were you? And and I'm so glad I'm talking to someone not named Marcellus because you know both of them for many reasons have have polar opposite opinions on on him especially. But sure. I just needed a a, a a third party to hit me to yeah the, well, that time period. Well, you know what it was. You know what it was for me, man. See. I was always fascinated with Miles because to me, Miles is always the underdog. A lot of people don't realize that, you know. And he Billy, was? Yeah, man. And Billy Eckstein's band, you had Dizzy Gillespie and, and uh, Fat Fast and Viral in the band. And right. uh, he was like one of the third or fourth trumpet players in the band. And and it, it wasn't, he wasn't one of the strongest guys. You know what I mean? Wow. So, you know, he was always like the underdog. So that's why he went a totally different direction. So for, for me... I've always been fascinated with everything Miles did because I'm kind of like a, a historian when it comes to him, I guess. You know, I don't know if historian is the right word, but, yeah. you know, I'm always fascinated by the things that he wanted to do because he was so heavily affected by that earlier period of playing with Bird and playing with Billy Eckstein in that band that it, it made him, it forced him to find this other approach that was totally different from the Roy Eldridge's and Dizzy Gillespie's and all of those guys. Right. Mm -hmm. And in finding that approach, he just all of a sudden blazed a whole new trail. And then you can see, he just never looked back from that point. He just kept moving and kept moving forward. And that was his thing. So by the time he got to doing Jean-Pierre, we want miles and all of those things. 
you know, I wasn't looking for, and, and I know this may be sacrilege to say, but I wasn't looking for the next big musical breakthrough from Miles. You know what I mean? I was just fascinated by why he made those choices. And you know, just watching that, the journey. Yeah, they have they have yeah. to be a reason. You know, um, I I didn't think that I'm. You know, I got a chance to meet him around that period. You know, he saw me play and at this jazz festival in Florida, man. And unbeknownst to me, when I was in Italy, he did an interview uh, with some Italian journalists and he said, uh, they asked him, so who do you like out of the young players? And he said, I like Terrence, but I didn't know he said this. So yeah, so all of these journalists, I come out of the hotel in Perugia and all of the journalists come running up to me, you know, and they said, well, what do you think about what Miles said about you? And I go, you know, it's Miles. You go, so what did he say? Right. Said, right. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, first of all. Motherfucker. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> this can run two directions. So after that, he had a show that night, and Al Foster was playing drums. Right. And and uh, I'll never forget it, man. When they came off the stage, they would always clear a path for Miles, you know. Always, yeah, everybody had to step back. And I was standing there, and, and Al could see, you know, me looking at Miles, and he just knew I never met Miles. And he said, man, come on in the back and me introduce you to Miles. And when I walked in, Miles goes, Terrence. You know, I was like, ooh. <laughs> I said, keep doing what you're doing, motherfucker. You know? Wow. And, uh, and, he was, and he was always cool with me, man, every time I would see him after that. So for me, I didn't look at him as a person, you know, I always still th- thought he was always making moves, strategic moves. You didn't have to agree with him. You didn't have to like him. You know what I mean? But he was making moves in his mind. So when I hear those records, that's what I hear. I love Tutu. I think I think those records are brilliant because you don't see anything like that. You haven't seen anything like that since that record where you have somebody like of that caliber who's not taking that music lightly. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Who's really coming at it from a place where he's trying to do something interesting and trying to contribute and not and trying produced to produced by it. Marcus Miller. Like, yes. <laughs> you know, not, not, not trying to take advantage. You know what I mean? Yeah. So right. that's the thing that I really dug about that record. And, you know, I love that record. You know, it's one of my favorite favorite records. Oh, but that's yeah. the thing I dig about Miles. I want my career to be like Miles. I don't want to sound the same if you pick up a record from now and then to pick up a record from 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 me 20 years ago you know what i mean to me that that's that's the tragedy you know because life didn't life would be boring if you did the same shit all the time you know for real yo what's up this is fonte fontigolo from team supreme black representation in media is very important to me i think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. 
Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Man, one question I had about Miles, um, and I've talked to, me and Glasper, like we debated this before. Mm-hmm. Would you say that Miles, because in my mind, the way I came into him, was he kind of the first guy to to create what we now know as smooth jazz, so to speak. Like I know it's kind of looked as a, as a, um, it's smooth jazz is looked at as kind of a pejorative now, you know what I'm saying? But at the time when I got into, uh, jazz, I was a kid. And so, you know, kind of blue, that was like homework music for me. You know what I'm saying? And I was like, okay, okay, I can put this on. Okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm like, yo, like you know, I you mean, like, nah, not Taylor. Taylor. Yeah, no, I never. I, right. I, I never thought about that. I never thought you were kind of blue, kind of blue in that. In that, but I can see where you're going with that. I never thought about that with Miles. You know what I thought you were going to say was was it true that Miles was the guy that created like the fusion thing? And I would, right. mm-hmm. and I'd be like, yeah, because those those guys were coming at it from all different angles. You know what I mean? But I I'd have to put some thought into that about the smooth jazz thing because you know. Even though, because you know, it's funny. Before you said the kind of blue, I was going to say because you know, you 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 had like uh, uh, Lucky Thompson and all of those guys. They mm-hmm. were doing more of the R and B ish kind of instrumental music, and then I kind of let in years later to like a Grover Washington kind of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. David Sanborn stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. I mean? So, um, but the, when you threw you threw me for a loop with the kind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was just me as a kid. So, like, you know, we talk yeah, about yeah. just kind of where you well, you when yeah. you come to the music, what your experience is with it. Well, and so, for me, it would come on, and I'm like, all right, yeah. this is just chill shit. I do my homework too. And I that think, was, no, no, that was no. but I think I mean, before smooth cool. jazz, that's association. There was cool, and cool was, right. you know, birth of cool, which is probably a. a a better example of smooth jazz. I, you know, actually, Steve, you are the Creed Taylor uh, expert here. Now, I'm a Creed Taylor fan only because a lot of his stuff is so breakbeat oriented. Mm. You know, all that Bob James stuff, all the, you know, all the all the stuff on even Grover. Mm. Like, but I know that 
jazz experts or j- the jazz police will, you know, give that a raspberry down in, in two seconds. But <laughs> I don't know. I, I would yeah, think that we don't worry about that, bro. We don't, we don't worry about that. <laughs> and you're from New Orleans? Man, we don't know. Listen, bro, let me tell you how, something. How did you escape the cult then? <laughs> no, but here's a, here's, a, here's the thing about it. We don't deal with the jazz police. You know what I mean? There's a there's a difference between, like, upholding something, right, and moving something forward. You know what I mean? Like, well, I've been teaching. Well, I'm not teaching it now. But when I was working at the Monk Institute, man, I hung around Herbie and Wayne for over 15 years. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And and being around those dudes, they constantly make you think about things. And Wayne Shorty used to say, jazz means I dare you. You know what I mean? So that's the way that I look at it. Wow. You know, I, um, I, like <clears throat> I don't like, I don't like the divisions in music, you know, because we already have too many divisions in life. You know, we don't need divisions in music. As a matter of fact, I remember Years ago, when I was with R. Blakey, man, we were in Paris, and I don't know if you know who Margot Miller was, was a great jazz pianist. We would, we would, <laughs> bro, I hate to admit this, but we was homesick, so we went to McDonald's and shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think you're the only one that would go to an American? <laughs> we all did that. We all done that. The French fries in, Par- in, Par- on, in Europe are awesome, on, man. I've, exactly. <laughs> and on per diem, shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but while we were sitting there, man, I, I remember we heard Nancy Wilson. We heard uh, we heard some R&B. We heard some classical music. And it was all being played from the same station. Oh, oh Europe. Oh, Europe. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it was all African-American artists. So I'm assuming yes. I'm, I'm classical. Yeah. I'm assuming the classical person was African-American. <sighs> and I was sitting there saying, wow. And, and it was deep because... It took us a minute to realize it because when you you know you first sit down you kind of think oh this is just gonna be like some R and B stuff that's playing and the next thing you know it's like Tommy Flanagan got something that's playing we go what what the hell and then there's something else playing and I went see man this is what's really cool because then we're starting to see the breath of, of who we are as a community but not this kind of localized kind of thing yeah mm-hmm. you know and it keeps people fearful it keeps people fearful of trying to. Ex- experience something different you know what i mean right. yeah all right steve i'm asking your question unless you're going to ask it right now well i have a question but i doubt you know what it is <laughs> okay well then i'm taking your question <laughs> uh, okay uh, i i can wait all right ask your ask your question steve <laughs> no i don't want to ruin i don't want to ruin your flow uh, i was going to ask what was the first album that you <laughs> oh no, that's not my my question. Is where's your album collection right now, so we can pull up and and you know, <laughs> that's the question. You know what? You know what's funny about that, bro? Man, my wife just has some cabinets built, and we put all the records over over there. You know, and and I got my turntable over there and everything. I'm I've switched everything over to digital, dude. <gasps> Ooh. Uh, you okay, Steve? You off the floor? You're save right? that space. <laughs> you okay? No, 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 no. It's not. You know. You know. You know. I'll you talk know. to you guys later. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get oh, it. Man. I know a lot of dudes like that. I get it. I get it. You know, it's it's interesting, man, because uh, I felt bad one day, man, when my kids they were they were little, they're grown now, but. When they were little, I felt bad, man. I pull out the turntable 
and uh, gave them some records and the watch them put the needle on the thing and with such amazement in their eyes was like I went wow right right, right. Yeah, my so daughter just found CDs yesterday. She's like, "What are these?" I was like, "Really? Oh, shit, yeah." She took and then she took them. <laughs> she took them and she used them to paint on. They were I, like to paint to make art out of because she didn't know what to do with them. She, it, was a, it was a moment. I can't deal hey, with that man, in my mind. Hey man, a good friend of mine, a good friend of mine, he used to sell records here. He had a he had a store here in New Orleans years ago. We were over at his house hanging out, and my daughter Sydney, who's living in Brooklyn, man, he knows she's a musician, she's a songwriter, and everything. So he pulls out and one of the first Sony Walkman. Oh, mm. the yellow ones? No, the, no, the first the ones. ones. Yeah, the blue oh. Yeah, and he gave it to her. What's she do with that? What's she, what's she, she... I told her, I said, I, I gave her this long, long lecture about you don't even know what you have. You need to respect yeah. what it is you have, blah, blah, blah. Because it was in pristine condition. You know what Ooh, I mean? Oh, wow. Yeah, it still worked. I mean, it, you know, she has it She has it wrapped up in a... In a in her room now. I didn't let her take it to Brooklyn. As a Wait. museum piece. <laughs> I feel like you got some bragging rights real quick about your kids, though, because I didn't know about your daughter that's a songwriter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My son actually wrote some stuff on one of my albums, man. You know, he's a great songwriter, too. Jay. Jay he Ray does poetry, Al- right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's his yeah, name? Because we're about, we about to follow him. Terrence, what's their name? Jay Ray Oliver. But it, the Ray is spelled like R-E-I. Okay. okay, and then what's your daughter? My daughter's like, like her name is Sydney, but uh, she Tom, she's got like Tom Girl or something. It's our handle on, on the IG. You know, okay, I can, you know, that's fine. I just wanted to know at least we can find them ourselves. Brother, I just wanted to know they to release our first record with a band called Priestess. They're about to release it. You know, what's her yeah. band called again? Say their name again. Priestess. 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 Yes, Priestess. Okay. Yeah. Nice. All right. Yeah. But okay. So, what was the first album? that you purchased? Oh, man. Well, in your childhood. Okay. okay. I have to clarify that. See, and it was funny because you were talking about Maynard Ferguson. See, I was a big Maynard Ferguson fan when I was a kid. So some of that stuff was some of the first stuff I bought. But when I really started to get serious about jazz, man, it was uh, Miles Davis, funny, uh, My Funny Valentine Live, uh-huh. and Brown and Roach, Max Roach and Clifford Brown. Brown and Roach. Oh, with Jackie on it. Yeah, that's my shit. Okay. Or, whoo, I used to wear those records out, bro. So but you I got into jazz early. Yeah, because you know, living here in New Orleans, man. I mean, you know, you're just exposed to all of these great musicians. You hear guys playing instruments all the time, you know. So you just kind of it's just in your system. Can Can I ask my question now? I mean, yes. Uh, um, it's not re- related to to vinyl records or anything, but your your actual trumpet. Yes. Um, for people who have seen you play on live or on video, it looks different yeah. than a normal trumpet. And yeah. I think um, me and our viewers might be curious, like, what's the difference between your trumpet and a uh, quote unquote normal trumpet? And like, does it have anything to do with the, you know, the mouthpiece especially looks, looks different. Does that have anything yeah. to do with what we were talking about earlier, the physical aspect of, of having a it? Bit, a little bit. I mean, it's made by a guy named David Monette, and the model is called a Roger. A, uh, I'm sorry, R-A-J-A. And what he does is, when you see it, it has a lot of thick bracing on it. And the reason why the mouthpiece is there, and it's actually removable, but it takes a long, long time to unscrew, because what he's trying to do is to try to create a really tight fit so nothing really vibrates in the metal. But when you get to the bell, he makes a really, really large bell that's dense. And when you pluck it, man, it rings, right? 
So that's the only thing that resonates on the horn. And his theory is that by keeping everything else so rigid, the sound goes through the horn rather quickly and creates a broader tone coming out the bell. And what about the the physical aspect of is it easier on your on your mouth? No, I mean it's the same. I mean he would like to tell you it's easier because you know it's slotted better and blah blah blah. Uh, it's still a trumpet. It's still still a physically demanding thing. You know there was a great trumpet player. Man, I was telling him I said, man, I'm trying to get to the point where it doesn't hurt. He said, man, it oh. always hurts. Bro, <laughs> let it go. Man, what is the difference between I used to, I mean, play and I still never really knew trumpet, cornet, and flugel? Well, I mean, both of all three of those, it's really about tone. I mean, they're going to feel different just because of the tubing and everything. Flugel mm-hmm. horn is going to feel like really kind of open. It's, you know, mm-hmm. cornet, for me, it feels a little more restrictive, you know, but it's just about tone, you know, and, and it's kind of interesting because. I haven't played cornet or flugelhorn in a long, long, long time. I guess the me, notes are still the same as the trumpet, though. It's still oh, the same exactly, fingering and everything. Exactly. Gotcha. Exactly the same. It's just different. Why did Why did Art Farmer stop playing trumpet and only play flugelhorn exclusively? He did it. He plays a flumpet. Yeah, he he came up. Well, the same guy, huh? the same guy that made my horn made his horn, and he came up oh, wow. something in between a trumpet and a flugelhorn, and they call it the flumpet, you know? And it was designed to kind of bring those physical sine waves together to create a tone that's kind of in between. But he had, he had, he had, that was something, a lot of that is like in your, in your head, man, like what you're trying to hear, you know what I mean? And that's a, the beauty of, of, of any artistry, you know? You know, that's what I try to teach my kids. It's like, I can't tell you who you are. You know, I could just give you the tools to kind of help you to, to develop your ideas. But who you are is you're, you're an individual. You have to do that investigation yourself. And the more you do that, the more you trust it, the more you'll start to see that maybe you're not like somebody else. Maybe you do like a different tone. Maybe you do like a different setup on your drums than somebody else. And that's OK as long as you're expressing what it is you want to express. Now, I was just wondering if you just still um, play other types of if you play other brands or models of trumpet or just exclusively the one that we see you with? Yeah, just the Monet. I'm the, you know, uh, I haven't played a horn that plays as, for me, at least plays as well as his for me, you know, and uh, maybe it's just because I'm, I'm accustomed to him. Um, but there's a certain, you know, Maurice Andre was this great classical trumpet player from Paris, man. And he made a comment one time and it stuck with me. You know, he said there were moments in time that he would play that he would forget that he had a horn in his hand, you know. And sometimes with playing the Monet, it's kind of like that. You know what I mean? It's like the, the the trumpet is just what it is. It's an instrument, man. My trumpet teacher always used to say, you know, he's, he would he would point to the trumpet and goes, what is that, man? What is that? And I always give him this scientific answer, man. You know, like, oh, it's a two, man, it's blah, 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 blah. He goes, no, man, it's a mirror of the mind. It's a mirror of the mm. mind, mm. you know? And uh, <clears throat> that's the way that I kind of look at it with his horns. When I'm playing his horns, I don't, I get to the point where I'm not thinking about playing the trumpet. You know, it's about trying to convey an idea to an audience. Um, growing up in New Orleans, mm-hmm. um, especially 
at the age, uh, in your formative years, what was your relationship with pop or soul music at the time? Like cats, mm-hmm. I saw, you know, cats that I grew up with in the seventies, Yeah, you know, they, they were, you know, they were looking to like Pee Wee from the Ohio players or like William King from the Commodores, like mm-hmm. every high school wanted to play like love roller coaster or that sort of thing. Like we're, what was your relationship with just All-Stars, modern music at the time? <laughs> That's what it was. Bernie Warwell. Yes, indeed. Bernie RuPaul. Um, Bernie, uh, Paul Mofunkadelic's Earth, Wind & Fire, Cool in the Gang, Mandrill, you know, uh, all of those groups, man. That was the stuff that I used to listen to. As a matter of fact, I used to play keyboard in a pop band when I was in high school and really dug it. You know what I mean? I had a lot of fun doing it, man. And I continue to do it you know even when i got to college a little bit we used to we used to do a lot of that stuff playing okay. those gigs and i always had fun and listen man i've always loved that music you know that's why i love prince so much because prince to me was like a throwback you know obviously he come out of james brown you could hear all of that stuff you could hear mm. you know where he paid reverence to a lot of people that had come before him but the thing that i liked about prince is kind of like miles to me in that you know with all of those albums bro he was trying something different and he was always finding something new to express, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, he he was unapologetic about it. I I just listen, man. You know, <laughs> he was the only artist that I saw at the time that could have like a like a, a heavy metal tune and a country tune on the same album. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And, right. Still, and it'll still sound like him. You know what I mean? It's like right. you, you had to tip your hat to that. So, so I, funk and soul wasn't a, a four letter word to you at the time. Never. Never, ever. No. Okay, so now no. I'll go back to my original question, because yeah. I, I know that you've had associations with Ellis Marcellus mm-hmm. um, and and his kids. How did you escape the, at least in our pers- my personal uh, mm-hmm. point of view, the this kind of get out, cultish jazz cultish uh regime of marcellus seriousness <laughs> which you know depending on which marcellus you talk to is either yeah. some of them are wide open or rebellious or mm-hmm. some are very much like you must study the book of you know chapter jazz verse <laughs> swing you yeah. know yeah how I did get- you escape that well i mean listen man you know at, at a certain point in your development those things are really appropriate to help you to just decipher information. You know, so when I was a young kid, all of that stuff was was really was really great to make me sit on and focus and practice, you know. But at the same time, bro, I'm still a compassionate feeling person. I'm not gonna deny what it is that I feel in my soul. You know what I mean? I'm not gonna turn it's a I I give you another example. You know, forget to myself, I'll just go to the church. You know, I grew up in a congregationalist church in New Orleans, man. Andrew Young was a member of my church. Oh, wow. You know, yeah, he grew up in my church, you know. So it was it was interesting because as long as I played classical music, man, those people loved me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When I started to become a jazz musician, they used to say, well, you know, that's that jazz is fine, but you keep, keep up with your classics, you hear? And I'm like, you know, that would always bug me because I love music, period. Mm-hmm. You know, there's things that I feel that I can't, I, I, I will not ever deny, you know? Yeah. So, so when I'm, when I'm listening to, you know, um, 
when I'm listening to when I'm listening to Jodeci, right? And <laughs> Jodeci, you know, and and Jodeci, some of that shit is like like really funky, you know. Right. I still feel something just as much as when I'm listening to Putin's live women. And I know people say that as a as a thing, you know. I don't. I'm not doing that, you know. Uh, I, I look at, you know, this world is a vast world, man, and God has given all of us different talents to express things in various ways. So there shouldn't be one way to 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 to, to skin a cat. You know what okay. I'm saying? Okay. And as long as you're coming at it from a point of view of honesty and sincerity, who gives a shit? Yeah. What it is that you. Nice. You know what I mean? It's it's like that. That's my personal opinion. For for me, I think all of that divisive stuff is a way that has kept black people separated from each other in a way that's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. You know, and nice. I think it's kind of hard for us to see that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And maybe it's funny because we interviewed M. Tumay, and I feel like in a way he had to fight that fight, so maybe other people wouldn't because he definitely was vocal about how people felt about him making that transition in the R and B and whatnot. Oh, look, you know, with my band, The E-Collective, I heard it. You know, I've been mm-hmm. here, you know, when I when we did a man, it was funny. <laughs> it was funny. When we did our first tour of Europe, dude, it was funny. Every time we go out in the audience and we saw gray hair, we go, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. It's going to be one of them nights. But the funny part about it, man, you know, when the band will start to play, and, you know, Oscar Seton is a drummer, man, and he's got a strong pocket, man. And when the band will start to play, People will start tapping their feet and they will start grooving to the music and we say, mm-hmm. oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So for me, man, music is music, dude. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's 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 uh, you know, it's I don't know. I I I hate the labeling of things, mm-hmm. you know, because I've seen it just keep us apart rather than bring us together for too long. And uh I just wish we could just turn turn that around. We haven't learned from like Herbie, you know what I'm saying? Because Herbie was showing us this years ago. You know what I mean? You're right. You're right. Y'all was still having a conversation of Mo Better Blues, though. Yeah. Oh, listen, man, man. You know when we did Mo Better Blues, it was kind of funny because when the when the when the movie hit, we were like in the top ten on radio charts in DC or some shit. Yes, we was loving it. We was loving it. You're you're from DC. This episode. Born and raised Howard University Hospital. <laughs> Born and raised. This episode. How- okay. Okay. Just checking. Today. Tutu baby born in DC. I got gotcha. you. Yep. <laughs> um, Today's Terrence, narrative. So, yeah. <laughs> um, with what would you say is your your? Uh, well, I know you you played with Hampton. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. But what what was your first professional? I made it. I don't have to have a part time job. I'm officially gigging. Like, what was your first official oh, moment? Playing, playing with our Blakey. Ooh. Oh, so Messengers mm. came first? Yeah, man. When I was about 19 years old, I joined that band. And uh, I had to leave school. I was going to Rutgers University in New Jersey. Woo-hoo. And uh, we're Regina Bell, man. You know? Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, this is yeah, up. Yeah, we were all in school together. Yeah. Didn't even know and, she went to Rutgers. That's dope. Okay. Yeah. I did not know yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So what was that whole key? Tell us about that experience playing with, with Art. Oh yeah. man, bro! What, I, what I, I year was, was that? Sorry, what what year were you in the Messengers? It was from eighty two to eighty six. Okay. And I, and I tell people, man, I was there for four years, but I aged like by forty. Bro. <laughs> 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 you know what I'm saying? I was a young little kid from New Orleans, fresh off the farm, bro. It was 
And then my first tour with him was like 10 weeks in Europe, dude. Wow. You know, Tell us everything about it, man. Country yeah. trip from New Orleans, bro. I spoke a little bit of Spanish. Bro, it was a trip just trying to eat. Oh, my God. And then we hit London the last two weeks of the tour. Bro, uh -huh. I was so happy to hear English. <laughs> English, right? <laughs> right. Man, it was crazy, bro. It was it was crazy. But, you know, listen, man, I, I, I learned a lot about the world. And I came back. And I remember I came back. And I was telling my mom about my cousins and stuff. I said, you know, we need to figure out a way to get these kids to travel to see the world because that's yes. a good education, yes. you know. And I learned, I learned a great deal. And Art was the type of guy, man. You know what I mean? He he had a Art. Art was a, was an interesting personality. You know what I mean? He he was the kind of guy he could bullshit you all day long, but then man, there'd be those moments, bro where you would sit down and have a conversation about him, a conversation with him. And mm. bro, it would be like life lessons, man. You know, and those were always the moments that I truly cherished having with him. Cause you know, it would be like one-on-one -on -one in the dressing room and he would just start talking about some things. And he opened my eyes to a lot of stuff, bro. And the way I run my band is still based on the way he ran his band by giving guys opportunities, a lot, allowing them to contribute to the to to the the repertoire of the group and the, to the concept of what's happening with the band, you know, I owe I owe a huge debt of gratitude to that man because he really turned me around. Burn four four years, dude. Four four. Think about this. Four years. I met all of my jazz heroes playing with him. That's wow. how I met, okay. I met right. them all playing with him. Yeah, because Max Roach was around then too, right? Like, yeah, Max. Okay. We playing uh, this club in New York, Fat Tuesdays, and in the table, and it was a small little club, and in the table right in front was Max Roach, uh, uh, Jack DeJanet, and I think mm. it was Elvin Jones, and the three of them were sitting there, oh. you know, and I was like, Jesus <laughs> Christ, really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like, Trial by fire. That's a good table. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm like in my early twenties and shit. I'm trying to, I'm trying to play it off and be cool. But you know, on the inside, I was sweating bullets, man. <laughs> and, I, and I never walked. And I remember walking by Max, and Max was like really strong, man. And he, gra he grabbed my calf. I don't know why he did it, but he grabbed my calf. He said, "Man, look at the calves on this ball." <laughs> and, I and, I, and I couldn't go nowhere. That was the funny part. I forgot to tell you that part. <laughs> I couldn't go. Nowhere. I was like, I was stuck. I was like, damn. You know, it's like next generation sharecropper talk. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, uh, Terrence, when you are, when you're young, mm -hmm. and you're in this institution, yeah. How do you not? How do you resist the temptation to not flex? Um, oh, because, okay. So, like, yeah, when I DJ, yeah, yeah. when I DJ, mm -hmm. it's me and, and the audience. Mm -hmm. But the second one of my peers comes in the <laughs> DJ booth, then the temptation, then the temptation to like play that rare, obscure Japanese record that I brought that only we get. <laughs> like the temptation to flex, and I know I'm gonna lose my audience if I do it. And I might, you know, and sometimes I've gave, given in and just let the audience, you know. Oh, yeah. Floor go. Oh, we were in Minnesota. We felt it. Uh, <laughs> uh, when we nah. went to Fifth Avenue. To you were nine Prince fans. It's Everyone the, loved that it's shit. It's the, anyway. the first Avenue. The Whatever it is. Anywho. 
But you know, but, you know, being with Art, I get what you're saying. I understand. Because, you know, being with Art, man, here's the thing you got to remember. That was a long legacy of great musicians that came in that band before you, before any of us, right? So right. you were already humble just by being in the band. And look, some of those dudes would come by and hang out. Man, you got, back then, you got to remember, man, Woody Shaw would show up. Freddie Hubbard would show up. And those dudes would just be sitting in the club hanging out. Wow. Damn, okay, all right, man, he's here checking me out. All right, Eddie Henderson was another one. Oh. And then the other part of it, too, is that, you know, we really wanted to learn. We, you know, the our thing was, but I know my thing was, I wanted to learn as much as I could about playing music because for some reason, even though I was young, I knew that that moment was something to cherish. You know what I mean? I didn't try to take it for granted. So every little thing that I could, I tried to milk as much out of it as I could, you know? So I was like a fly on the wall, bro. Sometimes, man, the guys would come by and they'd be hanging in the dressing room, bro, and I would just be sitting in there quiet as a church mouse, bro, not saying a word, just watching and listening to these conversations that's being had with Dexter Gordon or, or, or you know, um, Walter Davis or mm-hmm. Herbie or uh, Al Jarreau came by and sang, ah, sang with man. us one one time, Stanley Stanley Clark would come by and play with us, you know. Uh, but I meant more on stage, like what? Because I know that if you're in that position, like the temptation to not to start showing off, or mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying you could take extra bars or not without Art getting upset with you. Mm-hmm. But like, what stops yeah. you from showing off, or when no. cats do that? Because I could tell when, like, yeah. if cats notice that I'm watching them, and suddenly like they're doing extra shit that they don't need to be doing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I cured us of that because I used to say throw sticks. Yeah, I mean, he said, he said, "Stop playing for the musicians, goddamn it!" Thank you because I'm yes. the, I paid yes. for this ticket and I would like to see what I thank you because that dude did not pay for that ticket that you impressed. He That's got you exactly what he said. Exactly. He said they're gonna ask you for a free ticket and he said you're gonna have to file their hands off of one goddamn beer because they're not gonna buy nothing. So. Stop paying for the musicians. You hear that, Amir? I love but, it. I love but, it. But, but All right, I'll this. take that. I'll take that advice. Like, I'll t- <laughs> tell you this. No, but I will tell you this. I will tell you this. Art was a type of dude, if your job, your job was always in jeopardy. You know what I mean? Oh. You know what I mean? So sometimes what he would do is, man, he'd bring a dude up on your instrument on the bandstand. Oh. <laughs> now, that was when you had to show out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So because challenge, challenge, exactly. Yeah. challenge. <laughs> exactly. And I remember I forgot who it was. I forgot who I don't forgot who, who the trumpet player was. He said, "Why don't y'all play a ballad together?" I went. Uh, I, I don't know him. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> but that was art, man. You know. And then, and then, if there ever was an inkling that art was unhappy with somebody. You kind of knew because there would be a whole bunch of dudes with that instrument showing up to the gig. <laughs> mm. I'll never forget one time, man. There was a whole bunch of saxophone players showed up and they were just sitting on the side of the stage, man. I was like, damn. And when it got time for the art to let him come up and play, he let him come up. It was about five or six of them. He let him come up and play. And then he called Smitty Smith. Marvin Smitty Smith was in the audience. Right. He called him up to come play the drums. Then he went in the dressing room. He was chilling. He was like, yeah, young. <laughs> oh, wow. That's crazy. Wow. So yeah. why why did you and, and uh, Donald Harrison decide to leave uh, in your fourth year with uh, Art Blakey? 
Well, we knew it was time, man. And 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 arts band was the type of band where it was like a finishing school for young musicians. So we didn't want to occupy the space mm-hmm. any longer. We knew other musicians what should have gotten that experience, and That's we dumb. had gotten signed to Columbia Records. We'd already made a record with George Ween's label on Concord Records, but Columbia, George Butler, had signed us to Columbia, and uh, we were getting I, I was, ready to release that. Record. I was going to say, can you can you describe what? Uh, I know many people that have worked with George Butler, especially like mm-hmm. during that period. Yeah. What what was Butler like? As a, was he an A and R of jazz at Columbia, or was he? Yeah, president? he was an A and R. He was vice president of A and R and jazz. He man, George was a cool dude with me, man. You know, I know a lot of people had took issue with George. George was the type of guy. You know, he was he was. Uh, how do I say it? He knew how to maneuver, you know, mm. and in his maneuvering, you know, some people didn't like what it is that he would do, but he was good by us. You know what I mean? And I remember even after me and Donald, uh, the band split up, he signed me on as a, as a you know, as a solo artist there. And mm. uh, we always had like a really great relationship, man. You know, I had told him <laughs> I had told him this very vulgar, funny story one time, man, and you know, and it was funny because George was a real proper guy, you know. Uh, right. But but we would hang out and uh, have some drinks, and he'd be like, with some friends, he'd be like, hey, Terrence, uh, tell tell him that story. Tell him that story." <laughs> <laughs> he was a funny dude. I'm afraid to ask for that story now. No, we can't. <laughs> we can't. <laughs> Not just because I'm here. You would do it. Would you? You would do it if I wasn't here. Because I'm raunchy as fuck. No, 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 no. no. Oh, okay, okay, that's no, fine. Because no. I just want you to know I'm raunchy, so I could probably <laughs> challenge you. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, probably. Okay. Well, at the, at the time, at the time when uh, when you and and Donald were were heading up uh, the band, how do you how are decisions made creatively? Um, as far as what direction to go or who gets what or who yeah that was a that was a tough one i mean you know it was a tough thing but that we looked at the band as like a workshop band you know so everybody was bringing the material and that's basically how we did it you know mm-hmm. um uh he'd write music i'd write music and then the interesting thing about it like sometimes he would write music and i would be influenced by what he was writing so that's why the band had a sound you know what i mean because i think even though we were all writing different material I think we were all kind of like on the same page musically, you know? And then around that time, man, having that band together, you know, uh, Ralph Peterson, who we just lost, uh, mm-hmm. God rest his soul. Um, he was like one of the one of the first, one of the drummers in the band. Marvin Smitty Smith was one of the drummers in the band. And then we had Carl Allen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it, you know how it is, Amari, you know, with a, a drummer can set the tone for any band, you know what I mean? So that was also one of the things that kind of helped shape the sound of the, of the group when, I, when the drummers were changed. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. 
So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I can imagine that your kind of instant foray into the world of scoring for movies wasn't exactly like a, a, a goal, or at least I assume so. It's half the time you wind up in places that you didn't plan on. It just happens to you. Yeah. So how did you even get involved in the world of scoring? Man, you know, what's, you know I'm glad you asked that question, man, because I've, you know, I've been asked that question a lot. Uh, uh, and, well, not that question. I've been asked, what's a, you know, what would you tell young composers? And I'm always at a loss because I'm like, man, I wasn't looking for this. And it just fell in my lap. You know, right. mm. we were doing the pre-recorded music for More Better Blues for the actors to act to, you know, and I was getting ready to do my first record, solo project I was just telling you about for George Butler at Columbia Records. Mm-hmm. So I had written a song, man, for the kids that were massacred in uh, South Africa. And it was called Sing Soweto. And we had taken a break in the, in the studio and I was playing it on the piano and Spike walked by and he heard it. And he said, man, what is that? And I said, oh, man, this is this thing called Sing Soweto. He goes, can I use it? I go, yeah, 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 sure. And we just recorded it just as a solo trumpet piece back then. And then Denzel shot the scene, and it's the scene when he's on the bridge playing, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And and then uh, they got this, they got back to the editing room, and Spike was trying to fill it in. He put train noises, and it still wasn't really making, what, wasn't doing what he wanted it to do. So then he came back to me and he said, "Hey man, you think you could write a string arrangement for this?" You know. And I always tell my students, that's a moment where you know you lie, you know. And I said. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Sure. Hell yeah, I can write a range before. You know what I mean? So, I mean, that's what I did. Cut to. You're right. Cut to calling my teacher. Oh, man. <laughs> man, you got to tell me what to do, dude. You know? You but, had never done it before. You had no clue of how to do it prior to that. No, no, man. Wow. I, I studied composition, you know what I mean? But but, but I, I never had to do that. And as a matter of fact, that's what he told me. He said, trust your training. I was like, dude, that's not the answer I was looking for. Trust your training. <laughs> Wait, so there, there's there's a musical motif of yours that I've heard in at least three or four of Spike's films. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm it, This could be it. I've been looking for it. For starters, like, I'm mad that, with the exception of Malcolm X, like most of your Spike scores are not available. Yeah, but what is the name of the song that it, it was in Do the Right Thing? It's in Mo Mo uh, Mo Better. It, it's also in Malcolm X, but I can never find it anywhere. But it's like mm-hmm. uh, duh, 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 
It's it's like Spike has used this at least in ten music cues. That's the theme from Malcolm X. But how come that is not a? It's not anywhere. It is available. Yeah, that's available. That's available. Probably, yeah. Yeah, but what you're probably singing is the jazz version. There's another. There's some other versions of it. And then well, I've heard it as it's instrumental. I've heard it as strings. Yeah. I've heard it as yeah. yeah, that stuff. You're right. That stuff. Listen, that, that that's that's a big thing. You know, I've been. You know, I was talking to a publisher about about that recently. As a matter of fact, about trying to do something to. Because people have been asking me about that, you know. Yeah. When you start to think about your legacy for your kids and everything like that, and you know, now that we've reached this benchmark of working together for thirty years, which is something we didn't really realize. Uh, As of this year? No, a couple of years ago when we okay. were, you know, a journalist asked us the question: How does it feel to be working together for thirty years? We're like, thirty years. Thirty years. Has it has it been that long? <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, I was thinking about exactly that, bro. About um, trying to. I need, yeah, I need a box set. I need a box set for real, for real. Your entire history, every music cue, with, with, with Spike, or at least just your your entire history, because even the the non Spike stuff you've done. But can we? Can I ask you though? You and Spike, can you just tell us the quick quickness of that story and how y'all even connected? Because well, you know, we connected just because. Uh, there was a, a musician named Harold Vick, a jazz musician who was friends with his father. And he wanted to put together a group of musicians that were young and old for these sessions for Do the Right Thing in School Days and all of that stuff. So um, I think it was School Days. So he hired a bunch of us, you know, to play on it. And as a matter of fact, there's a video, man, that's floating around of one of the sessions. It's like a who's who in jazz at the time in New York City. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty crazy. And I never forget it, dude. Who was uh, there? Tell us about it. Who was there? Oh, just a lot of local guys, you know, you know, Bramford was there, John Faddis was there, you know, bunch bunch of folks. But I remember, man, I was a big Lakers fan, right? So and man, he had just beat the Celtics, bro. So I, I walk into the first session, but I got my hat, I got my t shirt, <laughs> I got my purple and gold converse on. And the Spike mm-hmm. was standing there greeting mm-hmm. him. I don't really know Spike. Oh, know, God. At all, you know? So I walk in, and he just looked me up and down. He goes, Lakers fan, huh? Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, boy. Hey, what's up, man? You know, come on now. Then next thing you know, man, he had me how to take him that, you know? <laughs> so how did... How did that narrow down, though, Terrence? Because you said it was a room full of musicians, dope musicians, local musicians, Mr. Lee. But somehow it narrowed down to just Spike and Terrence. Well, that happened when we started to do, well, there's a couple of things that happened. You know, Lenny White had, he was, he had this all-girl band. I forgot the name of the group. And he wanted Miles to play on his track. He couldn't get Miles, so he asked me to play a muted thing on it. And Mm -hmm. Spike used it in in the song. So Spike found out that that was me that played the solo. So then we kind of connected on that. And then when it came time to do, do the right thing, we kind of just connected a little bit together. But it really happened on Mo' Better Blues when we were doing those pre-records. When we started doing mm-hmm. those pre-records and hearing me playing the piano, that's when everything started to turn around, you know. And it's been an interesting journey with my brother, man. You know, um, he is he's brilliant, man, beyond belief. He's loyal, beyond belief. And one of the things I got to tell you guys, man, a lot of people don't really know this, man, but 
That dude fights for people. I believe you know, it. He, he does. Fights, he fights for people, man. And I've never seen him miss an opportunity to 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 to, to fight for for African American artists or like when we were in London, man. You know, uh, we were at the Baftas, um, and I'm drawing a blank on my man's name. Uh, what did you know, he do? When they, did, they did the movie um, about uh, the rock and roll singer. Mm. Uh, Freddie Mercury. Um, yeah. But what, was guy, what was the guy who played the played the character? Uncle Rami Malek. Oh, yeah. Rami Malek, yeah. Yeah. When Rami won Best Actor at the BAFTAs, you would have thought Spike won. Mm. He jumped up and down. He was so happy for Rami. You yeah. know what I mean? Because, you know, we're just trying to break down these barriers, man, and create equal opportunities for a lot of people, you know? we, Man, we'd be in interviews together and people would ask me a controversial question in LA and he would grab me and he go, don't answer that. He said, let me answer that because you got to work in this town. Mm. You know? oh. um, wow. he, he's always doing stuff like that. A lot of people don't really realize that. And he's, listen, I've met people who have come to me and said, Man, Spike is your biggest advocate. He's been fighting for you to get these nominations for you. Mm-hmm. So That's so dope, man. Yeah, I voted for you. You do. Thank you. Thank you. I voted. Hey, I I have two uh, mo mo uh, better questions for you. Sure. One, uh, were you Denzel's teacher as far as yeah the fingering all that stuff? How how long did that take, and what was the process like, and how fast? Man, you know, we had to learn because at first, I mean, I had never done that before. So at first I started making like little videos for him and I would send him to him out in L.A. And that was kind of helpful. But we got him a teacher out in L.A. just to show him how to buzz. And mm-hmm. then when we, when we when he came to New York, New York, what I figured out was, you know, hey, man, I need to write out the fingerings just on a piece of paper. So for all of the tunes, he had like sheets of paper with just the fingerings. So between learning how to buzz and the fingerings, he actually kind of learned how to play all of the melodies, you know. So really, oh, what's, yeah, bu- yeah. what's buzzing, Terrence? Just when you take just the mouthpiece. And oh, just it's just when you the buzz. Mm-hmm. You just, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. Trying to get a sound. Out, uh, that's how you get a sound out of producing the sound. So is that him playing one again? Never. Oh, that's messed you know? up with me. No, no. You know what that is? You know what that that's is? my worst nightmare. You know what that oh, is? What? First of all, it, you had to be there. It was hilarious because we started when we started doing takes. Spike up said, "It's not messed up enough, man. It's not messed up enough." Wow! He was actually in the room right in front of me, man. And what I started to do was I started to move the trumpet off to the side of my lip where I could never really play. Right? right. Uh-huh. I really tried to play. Right. So that's what you hear. Wow! Man, and I'm telling you, I was doing it, like, <laughs> in in the history of cinema. Short of maybe like a Saw film or or any <laughs> any of those like extreme right. gory violent film, like I never saw it, please. That never scene, never that <laughs> scene and move that is my worst yeah, nightmare. Man. Oh, really? My, not getting bass in your in your mouth with a, your own instrument? That's not a well. That that leads to it. Somebody yes. gonna hit you with a drum? <laughs> that that leads to it. Yes. Hey, um, but my second question. We, I'm sorry, second, you know what we need to do for that movie? What? what? The Lobby Spike. Because I know it's sitting around somewhere. Of, we need to have him find the outtakes of Robin Hamlin. Yes! yes. 
I was gonna oh, ask you, really? man. I was gonna ask you, did you he have was, any interaction with Robin while you were on the set? He was a, he was a sweetheart. He was a nice guy. But let me just tell you this: everybody would shoot their scenes, and other dudes would be in their trailers. Robin Harris would shoot his scene. Mm-hmm. Everybody, everybody was on set. Everybody, really? every single time was on set. And Ooh. he was hilarious, man. Hurry up and ask your question to me. I want to ask him about that after party scene. Come on, can we come on? Uh, <laughs> okay. Well. I have a question. I asked uh, Branford this on his episode, but his answer didn't satisfy me enough because I want to know the <laughs> science of, of the scene. Mm-hmm. So at the very beginning, uh, when they're doing Say Hey, yeah, there's there's a really genius point, you know, where uh, Shadow sort of interjects and, and, and takes over the song, keeps... Mm-hmm. Or no, 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 where, where Denzel's character prevents Wesley Snipes' character from hogging up the solo spot right. mm-hmm. and but to me that moment of interruption was so mm-hmm. authentic and you guys kept it on the soundtrack mm-hmm. sort of the messed up yeah yeah and and that part where how how was that choreographed because it wasn't like they had to shoot that scene first and you guys are in post following them so mm-hmm. like no but I, it's so spot on and perfect yeah no we just did it in the studio man i remember you know we, we we did a couple of takes of it, you know, where Branford would just play, and then all of a sudden I would just interrupt. And whose idea was that to make sure that it happens on the soundtrack of all things? Oh, on the soundtrack. You know what? That's that's a good question. Mm. Yeah, well, back then we were trying to just make sure that whatever we put on the soundtrack was kind of authentic and and true to what people saw on the screen. I know a lot of times people take alternate takes and put on the soundtracks, but you know, Spike wanted people to experience what what see, and I I thought that was such a bold move because it's like, even without context, I always wondered like people, for the few people that like, just had the soundtrack or heard the soundtrack without mm-hmm. knowing the context for which that occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, hearing that mistake on there was definitely like one of the key moments where like, you know, a lot of my my trademarks of what I do musically mm-hmm. is quote sounding messed up uh-huh. but <laughs> for me yeah. hearing that was just like such a, a come to jesus moment like oh you can you could purposely fuck up on the record and it'd be cool like oh you know that's great you know what our break used to say man our break used to say i try to make my drum solos sound like a set of drums falling down the flight of stairs mm-hmm. I heard that. <laughs> wow 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 so <laughs> So with all right, ask your uh, uh, after party because I want to ask another scoring. I just wanted to have how many moments you had where they were like, so in the after party moment, mm-hmm. one of the famous scenes about you know give the people what they want. If you play the shit, the people like people take. I was, people I, will come. The people will come. Yeah. Who is who is Terrence Blanchard in that conversation? Huh, it's interesting. Well, I'm I'm definitely not totally in that direction, but I just one thing I will say. And I got this from our Blakey. He said, never play above your audience, never play beneath them. Just play straight to them, you know? And that's what I firmly believe. I think there has to be a combination of both things, you know? I don't want to be that jazz musician who's so arrogant to always think that people have to come up to my level to experience what it is that I do. No. Yeah. You want to meet them where they are. Right. That makes no sense, you know? Uh, so for me, I try to create music that helps heal souls and helps to kind of change some hearts and minds about it. Some issues. So if I gotta come to you, that's what I'm gonna do. And was Pop Top Forty fun to make? Oh, it was man, we've been we've we've done these shows around the world in a lot of different countries with orchestras 
and the shows are uh, the the shows are the music of Spike Lee, and we have visuals, and we'll bring we'll bring vocalists out and sing all of the songs and stuff. And they're that, they're very hard to get into, Terrence. Yes, and that's one of the hits. People yes, are, booty, 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 titty, titty, titty. <laughs> <laughs> Let's how, get married. <laughs> how how um when you're presented with uh a new challenge, a new project, mm-hmm. how how long does it take you to even begin to craft what is it going to be? Or is it so shotgun where it's like a gun to your head, you're given a daily, and in three weeks you gotta come up with something. It, you know, man, you know what, it's, bruh, it's, it's gotten to the point now where I just tell myself, just start, just start, you know what I mean? Because I used to freak out and try to overthink things a lot of times, man. And when you sit down thinking too much, you're not really accomplishing anything. That's why when I'm not working, when I'm in between like projects, bruh, that's when I'm doing my homework on my plugins, on my sound design, on everything that I need to do. So when it's time for me to work, I could just go ahead and do certain things. You know what I mean? So for example, you know, I'm, I'm working on a project and I needed to craft a certain type of thing sound for the, for the show. And the first thought to my mind was, Oh, I need these types of drums. Let me get these drums up. Boom. Let me start playing some rhythms. And once I start putting these rhythms in the next thing, you know, that starts to spark an idea of like, Oh, I need to create this sequence baseline. So let me get in here and start messing around with the sequencer and the thing. And, and, put that together and i need to have something in the middle so it's it's almost like it's like putting together a puzzle you know mm-hmm. but the puzzle is 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 like uh is specifically designed for whatever project that you're working on at the time because all of this for and this is the thing man this this is one of the things i always tell my kids i said look man work at your craft because you never know where inspiration don't come from sometimes it's rhythm sometimes it's a melody sometimes it's just a sound sometimes it's a group of harmony, uh, harmonic progressions. It could be a lot of different things, you know, but if you have your tools together, whatever it is, you'll be able to take it further and find what's fine. You'll be able to flush the idea out. That's the thing that I always used to say. My, 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 my teacher used to tell me all the time. It's like whittling, you know, just chipping away at it. Okay. Spike aside. Mm -hmm. Um, and our audience should know that you've done, Many a classic film. Uh, you've done Sugar Hill, mm-hmm. uh, The Inkwell, yeah. um, Eve's Bayou. You've done uh, you did Gia with yeah. uh, mm-hmm. um, what's her name? Uh, Gia. Gia. Yeah. It was Angelina Jolie. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Angelina yeah. Jolie. Um, Only on did, HBO. I remember. You, I, I believe that you did Friday or next Friday yeah. with uh-huh. Cube. Yeah. What what non Spike associated project uh, was enjoyable to you all of them man are you kidding all of them the friday series was hilarious you know what i mean right i mean you know watching well, mike epps man in those scenes that dude is funny bro I'm, those, I'm those, on... those were fun you know working with george lucas on red tails was fun mm. you know? right um i mean you know it's it's about working with casey lemons on harriet you know we worked on some other things together Mm-hmm. A bunch of movies together. The guy that I did Gia with is actually the guy that wrote wrote the libretto for my first opera, uh, Michael Christopher. You know, doing Love and Basketball that was like really a lot of fun. I had a great time doing that. 
Because for me, man, it's a, like it's, it goes back to the thing I was telling you about earlier. It's about learning and expanding. You know, all of those, all of those projects help me to grow in a lot of different ways. You know, um, I'm not the guy to ever think that I have it together. You know, I'm I'm always trying to acquire knowledge and experiences. You know, and mm. I look at all of those things. What was the TV show that I did with Halle Berry? Uh, Their eyes are watching God. Oh, wow. Yeah. Michael uh, Ely. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. You know. um, So you don't do projects unless you really feel them, huh, Terrence? There's no sense in doing it. As a matter of fact, you know what's interesting about that? You know what's interesting? When I first got in the business, man, I had to turn down 11 scripts, you know, Mm. and I hated doing it, but I had to do it for a reason because, you know, all of the 11 scripts were, were, were black films. You know, and mm-hmm. one of the things that I tried to do was, and they weren't, you know, like Harriet Tubman or anything like that. You know, right. one of the things that I was trying to make a point to my agent at the time, a different age, I have a different agent now, was I don't want you to see me that way. You know, I don't mind doing those films. I don't have a problem doing those pictures, but I'm turning them down because that's all you're bringing to me. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And you need to see me in such a way where anything should be on my table, not just that, you know? And it, and I paid a price for it. I didn't work for for a long time, you know what I mean? But I just felt like if I didn't take a stand, they would just see me as one thing. Yeah, they would know? typecast you. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I hated it because I wasn't trying to make an indictment on the films. You know, mm-hmm. you, you see what I mean? It wasn't that. I wasn't trying to make an indictment on the films. What I was saying to my was to my agent. It's like, yo, dude, really? I mean, because at a certain point it became comical. I'm like, eleven scripts, dude, really, really, eleven. <laughs> now, um, any uh, notable films that you had to turn down or that you've turned down that were like, ah, damn, I didn't know that Avatar was going to be. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really wanted to do the Miles movie, you know. Um, Miles ahead. I was going to ask you. Miles yeah. ahead. Miles ahead. Uh, Miles I, you you well, might have dodged the bullet with that you, one. You did. You dodged. You dodged all day. <laughs> no, nah, you. Yeah, I think hey, he was good to sit well, that one out. Cause. But listen, when they were talking about doing it, you know, Miles. Listen, that's my hero. So I, I wanted, get it. Right. You know, I wanted to be a part of it for sure. Don Cheadle's hey, amazing. We say that. Although too. I did like, I did like what Glassford did for it. I mean, I didn't have no problems with the music. I mm-hmm. thought the movie was in, but I did, I really did like what Glassford did for that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. 
Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, so scoring, I'm not, I'm not a full time scorer, so. I'm not that deep in the pool. I'm still in the shallow end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and shout out to Spike, who got me my first scoring thing mm-hmm. with a commercial. But mm-hmm. what I what I do notice is that I'm used to it now, but in the very beginning, I used to be frustrated because oftentimes you're having sort of creative uh, direction conversations with people who aren't necessarily, uh, <laughs> they don't speak the language Come and it gets then, very man. frustrating. Come on then. Yeah. And so, but the thing is, is that how do you handle, like I learned early and it's hard, especially hard for me because I learned early in scoring that drums get in the way. <laughs> Woo! So I took drums, <laughs> you know, if you're asking a drummer to score a film and then I take drums out of it, I've learned like to stay out of the dialogues way and all those things. But now I kind of have a new system where, you know, I've, I've dealt so much with with people with people like knowing what they don't want as opposed to what they do want whereas yeah. i'll just ask them okay yeah. you obviously have like something in your something head something in so mind what is songs it? yeah right. give mm-hmm. me five songs in your head that you mm-hmm. think fits the scene and then i can craft around that yeah. And, yeah. and it makes it easier but what's your what's your process in dealing with someone that doesn't speak the language and mm-hmm. kind of makes you go back like what was your hardest task as a filmmaker that's Ooh, all the we're, not gonna, we're not gonna go there we're not gonna go there I, no 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 you don't have to you let's go down to them <laughs> no I'm, I'm just giving us like, yeah, yeah, an example like day. times where you okay. where you had to go back and do something over again and over no, no, and no, over no 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 I've, I've never had to had to had that it's more along the lines of just trying to find a baseline of communication you know what i mean and miles Facts. goodman who, who was my uh mentor in this business that was the one thing that he told me he said that's what you're really being paid for he said listen man we all can write music for film you know what i mean you know it's 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 really about following the story and becoming a storyteller with your music he said the hard part Mm -hmm. is just trying to figure out which way to go with that because a lot of times there's so many ways to deal with it you know you have to find that common ground with the person who's producing the project and that's where, you know, a good friend of mine, Mike Post, you know, he's a great TV yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mike told me one time, he said, listen, man, he had a project and uh, he said he, he was having an issue uh, talking to a director. And I thought this was brilliant, man. He said, man, why don't you come over to my studio? And Mike would just sit down and play a chord and say, all right, tell me what you feel. And then he would write it down. <laughs> you can play another chord and say, tell me what you feel. And he created a baseline of communication from that point of view. I try to do more of what you what you were just talking about. I mean, you know, when I when I I I said, listen, tell me what it is that you're hearing. If you have a playlist, send me the playlist. You know what I mean? Right. Um and 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 you're always trying to get at the core. But here's here's the here's the thing about it though. You know, the people who are coming to you have to to be open to stuff too. And they have to trust you. 
Yeah, they have to trust you, man. Yeah, and and when and when and when there isn't that trust, it can be rough, you know. Look, but look, man. But sometimes, as a musician, you gotta you gotta open up your eyes too. Listen, I just worked with Regina King on. Um, on oh yeah, Miami, Miami, Miami. Miami. Right. Yeah. And um, you know, when we first started talking about the score, you know, I had pitched a lot of different ideas to her, and I sent them. And she said, "Well, no, I, I kept thinking." She said, "I think it should be just like one instrument." I kept pitching these other ideas to her and she, and look to her credit, she checked it all out, listened to everything, you know, and then she said, well, you know, cause you know, it was her first time doing it, you know, first mm-hmm. time directing it. So she went through the process and she said, yeah, but I'm still feeling this other thing. So we went that direction and we just decided to just do piano and it wound up being beautiful. It wound up being a very unique thing. Everybody's talking about the music for the film, you know, right. and that's just where, me as a film composer, you know, I came at it with a certain thing, but I had to sit back and go, okay, well, I see where she's coming from. I went through them, you know, uh, with another director too, similar kind of situation. So both people have to be open on both sides. And when you run into that situation where you don't have that, it's just difficult, bro. It's, I mean, there's no other way around it because the word is collaboration, you know, mm-hmm. not dictatorship. You know what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. That that's that's where for me I've been blessed, you know, because most of the people that I've been working with are true collaborators. You know, uh, uh, I've had people tell me sometimes, "Damn, bro, you gave me some insight into my film that I didn't see," which is a compliment. You know wow. what I mean? Wow. Then I've had people, you know, who expand my horizons by getting me to see a bigger picture about how to tell stories. You know, so it's the reason why I love doing this. Have you learned um, or have it has it been your experience that doing film, uh, com- com- composing for film and TV and stuff, uh, has it been your experience that that has helped you in your regular, quote unquote, Ooh, <laughs> recording bro. career? Because, you know, because for me, man, like that, you know, I've, you know, as a young man, when I was younger, mm-hmm. I would take rejection like really personally, like, you know, a lot of us do. But wow. then when I started doing stuff for TV and music and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. TV and movies, or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just hey, if a song don't work, it just don't work. Just do another song, it and it's yeah. you don't think about it. You know, you don't take it personal. It's just like it don't mean no. I. Right, I'm the worst songwriter in the world. It's just like yo, this shit didn't work. Just do another one, right? And that's your, and that's your out, man. Because then it's not an indictment on you. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That's the thing. When you realize that, it kind of frees you up from all of that other stuff that comes along with that. You know, when you realize, like, man, look it's still in you just go try something else you know what i mean yeah and and i go and listen bro sometimes i go through that before it gets to the director i'll sit in here and i'll work on some stuff and I, and while i'm doing it bro i'm sitting there going what well, it's missing something it's missing something let me go ahead and work on it boom and i'll do that for a day or two bro and then come back and i go you know what is missing the the real cue <laughs> so let me go back <laughs> and throw this away and start over from scratch. Yeah. How 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 has that helped you in your no, oh the live performance? Yeah, just the live performance and also in recording your records. How has film composition helped you in that area? Oh man, look, immensely it, it it opened my eyes up to about using different colors on the bandstand. Even when I had my jazz band, I was still putting using the pedals and, and stuff on my horn, you know, effects on my horn. Mm-hmm. And which eventually led me into the e-collective. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, because for me, like I told you earlier, it's about utilizing these tools to tell a story, bro. You know what I mean? It, and it's kind of funny. You know, it's like everybody, 
there was this great guitarist, man. I, I I guess you guys know Lionel Lewake. He played with Herbie. Yeah, I was going to ask yes. you. Yeah, man. I love him, man. He's dope. Yeah. So, you know, when Lionel was in my band, man, we'd do these shows and Lionel would be playing and he'd have these loops going and all of this stuff going on and blah, blah, blah. And everybody would always come up after the show and want to look at the pedals, you know, and they want to take mm. pictures of the pedals. And so I said, bro, okay, he's got the pedals, but the pedals are tools. It really starts here. You know what I mean? It starts right. in the mind. So that's the thing that film helped me to realize. It's like, you know, are you still trying to tell the story the same way that Miles told the story? Mm. And he's not even doing it that way anymore. So, mm. and look, I got to tell you this story. This was, this was man, this was funny. Uh, it, but it was a wake-up call for me. So I'm on tour with Herbie Hancock. This was right before Barack Obama was uh, elected the first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were in t- we were on tour in Europe, and we were playing some some of Herbie's classic tunes. But we he had put these new arrangements on them, so we had "Speak Like a Child" and he had put some oh, wow. odd meter in it and did some other stuff to it. Oh. And then one day at sound check, man, he started playing a straight ahead version to "Speak Like a Child." So Kendrick Scott, the drummer, he jumped up and started playing, and James Zenith was playing bass, and he started walking. And Herbie started playing, and we were just sitting there going, ooh, that's killing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And because it sounded like old Herbie from the Blue Note Man days. Mm-hmm. And we were like, damn, that was killing. And Herbie, you know, we were trying not to make noise because we didn't want Herbie to see how we were reacting to what he was doing. <laughs> and Herbie stood up, and he goes, that just sounds so old to me. Wow. And we were like, yeah. Right. <laughs> Try to play it off. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, okay. All right, all right. Yeah, yeah, that's some old shit. Yeah. How do you how do you stop from being in but how do you stop from being in your head? Because I think oftentimes uh I, I know many artists that will make all these new arrangements of their same songs because they think that the audience has been there at all 9,000 shows of their entire career. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. oftentimes, yes, the, the the audience wants the meat and potatoes version of the song that was served to them as they remember it because you're there mm-hmm. to serve their memory or at least the audience thinks that you're there to serve their memory. But right. how do you how do you stop from going down that that rabbit hole of reinvention to the point where you lose the original script? I just don't do the reinvention part. You know what I mean? Because I know what you're talking about because, and I've seen it do exactly that. And I, so I, I try to stay away from it a little bit. I mean, you know, every now and then we might do something, but the the stuff that happens with us, it happens naturally. It may just happen over the course of us playing every night. Guys may throw a little something in that all of us starts to apart their room. But I, I try to go on that road you know, because what we try to do is we try to just keep moving forward, you know, <laughs> excuse me. So for us, you know, we have a project in that that's in can right now. Uh, still have to to finish where we did the music of uh, Wayne Shorter mm-hmm. with the Turtle Island String Quartet, you know, and um, it's a really cool album. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we got to we're going to once we put that out, we'll probably be touring that music. I, I got to ask before we wrap up about what made you want to create. Um, how, first of all, how does one create an opera? Um, yes, please. Yes. I, 
even in reading that, like I, I, I don't know, I had the hiccups. Like it, I was, I felt, <laughs> I felt very overwhelmed. Like, wait a minute, how how does one even begin to craft an opera? Like, it, yeah. So walk us through, uh, in creating operas, and how how does it start? <laughs> okay. It starts by somebody coming up to you saying, man, we want you to write an opera and me bending over the table trying to smell their breath to make sure they weren't drunk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, do you have the right dude, me, write an opera? And they say, yeah. And, you know, the guy, Jim Robinson, who's become a really good friend of mine, he was like, yeah. He said, I love the album, The Tale of God's Will. And they were trying to find some diversity in, the, you know, uh, what they were doing in creating new operas in St. Louis. So once they hired me, they, listen, man, they were smart about how they did it. So once they signed me to up, commissioned me to do this, they brought me to see their season. And I actually just sat there and went to a bunch of operas in St. Louis, right? Yeah, St. Louis. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then once I, once I did that, then, you know, they paired me, you know, I started writing some sketches out and look, bro. It, it's a, it is a daunting task. And, and the first time I did it, I was so freaked out about it. They had to reschedule my premiere. You know what I mean? I was supposed to open one year and I said, no, 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 no. He ain't ready. Let's do another year. Cause I wow. was, sitting going, you know, I could, I was just trying to do so much research and I was just like overwhelmed with the whole idea, but it was my composition teacher again, Roger. He said, man, stop trying to write an opera. Just tell a story, you know? Mm. And when it, once he did that, that kind of freed me up. And then I thought about something a friend of mine was saying. You know, he said, "Listen, bro, look, go ahead and just write your stuff, write write your opera, and tell your story." He said, "If it doesn't work, you can just say that just ain't my shit." You know what I mean? I tried it, it wasn't <laughs> my thing, and I did. And I just tried to be as honest as I could. But here's the thing: my father wanted to be an opera singer. My father was uh, a baritone, so I used to hear operatic music in the house all the time. You know what I mean? And all of that, all of those tones, all of those those lines and all of that development of how an orchestra can have a rush of energy, all of that was in my system. You know, I didn't really realize that. You said to tap then, into it. Yeah. yeah. And then when we when I started, when I had the first draft of the, the melodic lines, man, we said, actually, before then, you know what they did, which was beautiful. And it, man, if anybody wants to write an opera, you should do this. What they did was they had a group of actors just read the libretto like a play and I recorded it, right? Mm. Because then I could hear the story, you know what I mean? I could hear it unfold. I could hear the inflections and the voices and all of that stuff. So once I got the melodic line down, then we just started having workshops with singers, man. And I started learning about how to write for voice because come on, writing for an instrument, but if I'm writing for cello, the cello's ranges from here to here, you know, I know mm -hmm. what that is, you know? <laughs> But every baritone is different. You know what I mean? So some people call themselves baritone and they're more of a bass baritone. They can produce more low low, low tones. And some other guys are more like in a tenor range. A tenor, yeah. So yeah, I had to go through all of that. But the main thing about it all is that they they basically just kind of like ushered me through every step of it. And then once I got through it, man, when it came time to do the second one, I just had so I had more experience and I I just felt more comfortable with what it is that I wanted to do. And I got to tell you, it's so rewarding, man, because you sit in a room all day writing these lines. But, man, when these guys start to move around stage singing these lines and these yeah. words 
and they bring in the lighting and the wardrobe and all of this stuff. It's a really powerful thing. And I tell people it's the highest form of, of a musical that you'll ever, ever see. You know what I mean? Uh, Man. I, I think there's room for all different type of people to, to experience opera, you know, and I'll just say this and I'll, and I'll let it go. Will you do a third? Yeah. If they, as a matter of fact, there's talks about that now, but you know, when the, when my opera came to New Orleans, man, it was a bit of a controversial thing. There were a lot of people who were season ticket holders who wouldn't release their tickets and didn't come to my show. You know oh, I mean? oh, yeah, but that's, really? that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, because the people that did come packed the place. Hell know? yeah! And when they packed it, I remember this brother, man. He came up to me. He must have been like seventy-five years old, bro. And one thing he said, he said, "Man, if this is opera, I will come." And right. Wow. I said, okay. and, and that was a, the best compliment I could have ever gotten because what it made me feel like was that's part of what's missing in opera is our mm-hmm. culture. You know what I mean? Those stories. You reach someone who never would have went got into opera otherwise, if not for you, right? Because he could relate to the story. This, you yeah, know what right. I mean? The story yeah. was about Emil Griffith in 1965, so he could re- he could relate. And I was going to ask you why this full circle moment. It, like I, I thought about New Orleans, and I thought about Casey Lemons being like the director of this opera. Like out of all the the directors, what Brett made well, you? Well, she, well, she did. She, that's the second one. She wrote she the, the second one. Okay, Libretto for the second one because you know. I love Casey, man, and and uh, when it came time to do Charles Blow's book, I I had to have her. That <laughs> was funny was they flew us to they flew us to St. Louis, man, to hang out, and man, you know, Casey's like a dog with a bone, man. So it, <laughs> like wherever you saw Charles walking, it was Casey right behind him, you know, asking him questions <laughs> you know, for like three days. But she she did her thing. She's brilliant. Man. She's that, a that, yeah must, yeah. I feel like she's a little unsung, but she's sung oh, a lot of places. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at what she did with Harry Tubman, man. You know? Yeah. Oh, I was going to uh, say, man, my favorite uh, score of yours, and I think some of just my favorite music of yours, um, is from a movie that wasn't that popular, but I love what you did for it. Mm-hmm. Your She Hate Me score. Oh, man. why you do it, Fonte? Why you had to bring dude, it up? Dude, man, I love that fucking score. That shit is gorgeous, dude. You shitting me? Like, I mean, the movie was the movie, but the score? Man, get the fuck out of here. Like, man. And we already I'll was honest with Spike about the movie, so you don't got to hold no yeah. pressure. I know. A lot of people were. Trust yeah. me. Yeah, but the score, man, I love you know what you did and like your record uh with um with Raul Midon, the Adam and Eve and Eve, you know. Man, that, that dude, man. Oh that man, yeah. Record. You know, it's me playing some of the keyboard lines on that on that mm-hmm. album. Yeah, that, that's your boy, Derek Hodge playing bass on that, man. Yep, that is Derek. Yeah, yeah. man. Now what do you remember recording about? Because that that melody just like I just I love I, that, man. I just remember being in the studio with him and the energy was just like on point from the first take. And mm-hmm. it it just felt like I don't know how to explain it. I guess you guys have gone through this. You know, you start off doing that track and it has that energy and you think that's it, and then somebody adds something and it just keeps climbing. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's what was happening with that track, man. You know, man, we just had so much fun. And Raul was open to it all, you know, because I I remember there's this there's this little solo keyboard line that I played right going into one of the transitions. And he was he was cool with everything, man. You know, so we just we was just going for it, having fun. That's what's up. Well, I'm I'm predicting, uh, yes, even if it's against my own film, 
Mm. <laughs> oh no, only because Oh yeah, tr- soul, right. Mr. Only soul. because tr- but the thing is Trent and Atticus are actually it's it's so weird when uh, the academy allows uh, a nominee to to come in twice because it's just going to split. They're in for two films. They're in for Soul. Trent oh, and Atticus right. are also in yeah. there for Mink. Mink, yeah. So Oh, I, I see that. Yeah. I personally hey, I never feel saw that like this and, uh, this could be a year, but not to gas you up on that, but is that I mean, I know the the the, the PC answer is yes. I don't get caught up in those things. <laughs> do it for the love. Da 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 da. Mm-hmm. But you know, it it's it has to be exil- an exhilarating honor to. And as know, of this day, tomorrow is voting day. So just say. No, look, man. No, I ain't got no shame in my game when any of that comes across. You know what I mean? I never thought this would happen to me. Are you kidding, dude? Right. You know, I thought I was gonna be a dude who had a day job and played jazz because I love playing music. So all of this stuff is gravy, gravy, you know what I mean? And then to be recognized in such a way in 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 amongst some of some of the films that are some have been some of the greatest films that have been produced, man, is a huge honor. You know what I mean? You yeah. would, I mean it, it you're right. It's not it's not the reason that we do this, obviously. You know what I mean? Right. We've had a passion for just being creative, period. But but the honor itself is huge. You know what I mean? It it, it doesn't go past me. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry my father's not around to see that. You know, and it's probably a good thing because they would have to keep his ass off the stage. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Everywhere at the show. But, you know, uh, <clears throat> I'm. it's one of those things that makes you proud for your family, my kids. Cause they really get a big kick out of it. My wife, man. Hell yeah! When I, when I got nominated first time, man, I was on the road. I came home, man. It was like shit all over the house, man. It was like <laughs> everywhere, man. I could, and I was tired, dude. I said, man, I just want to relax, man. So, so I, you know, I said, I'm going upstairs. Went upstairs. There was shit all over the bed. Yeah, cause Oscar <laughs> made extra O's coming, extra zeros coming. No, I'm talking about all of the events that we went to. You oh, know? okay. Yeah, oh, yeah. No, no. Uh, and okay. I, that was for her. That had nothing to do with me. You know what I mean? Gift I just rooms. had a sucks. That was it. Yes. You have a well, lovely no, wife. I, yeah. If if anyone is on their way to uh, an an egot or a ghetto, I, I definitely feel it to you, man. And oh, thank you for saying. Yeah. I was going to ask: Does it mean something that that John Baptiste is in the in the category, which is your oh, New Orleans oh, brother? That's my, that's my little brother, man. You know, I've been knowing that dude, man, since he was a little kid. You know, as a matter of fact, one of the nights that we played at the jazz fest, we did a night show at the club here at Snug Harbor. And John Baptiste was the after entertainment when he was a young kid, man. Came up and played the piano behind Herbie Hancock. So when I saw him doing all the stuff he's been doing in New York, man, we just recently, not too long before the pandemic, did a show together at Carnegie Hall, man. And we texted back and forth, you know, when we got the nomination. Can I just say, too, because I just realized in this conversation that meanwhile we've had three people who worked with you on the the on this show from New Orleans, PJ Moore, and of course, Tank, of course, John Baptiste. But I want to defend us and say the reason that we waited so long to have you is because in our minds, we was coming to New Orleans and we was going to have a real show with Terry. That is the only reason that it took us so long to get this done. That's that's okay. Look, Tank, Tank, you know, we did a song for One Night in Miami. I know, I know. It's awesome. Yeah. She's awesome. She's, yeah. And it's funny because it's one of those things where you want to tell your students. Don't him and hard. That woman came in here and did two takes and it was done. Yes, that sound right. That it. sound right. That's it. our girl. And PJ. Big ups to him too. Cause you Oh, PJ too. He was another yeah. one. Man, I remember the first time I met him, 
he told me he was a musician. He was a young kid. I must have been about 20 or 21 years old. And I went, yeah, okay, man. And then for some reason, he sent me some of his stuff. And I went, who is this? <laughs> wow. <laughs> what? And then I lost track of him. You know what I mean? And then when I found track of him again, he was like PJ Martin. I was like, okay. That's <laughs> <laughs> bound to happen. That's for sure. He sure Still. was. Yeah, he was a good dude. Oh man, we yo, I, we have to ask like last question, last last question, man. Yeah. Um, the uh, when the levees broke. Oh, oh damn! I totally forgot. Aww. Yeah, man. Like, just talk about <laughs> yeah. that experience. Just you know the mm. just the emotional journey of, of scoring that. Well, you know the the wild part about that, man. You know, going through that period of our in our history, bro, was a traumatic thing. You know, because it was something you never thought would ever really happen in this country, and the and the mm. way it went down. The way we were talked about as being refugees, it was so disrespectful to look on the television and see people that look like people in my family and they were being called such things. You know, it, it, it was like you couldn't, you wanted to scream, but there was no place to go. You know what I'm saying? So we were in, a, listen, I had to go to LA because I had an apartment there uh, uh, because we couldn't come back to New Orleans. I couldn't find my mom for two weeks. When I wow. Found, when I finally found <laughs> When I finally found my mom, I said, Mom, I've been calling you for two weeks. She said, I heard that thing buzzing in my purse. Uh-uh. Oh. <laughs> my purse. Yeah. I my heard purse. that thing buzzing in my purse. Yes. That's all <laughs> right. Uh, it does. Yeah, but, you know, we were doing the music to uh, um, Spike Lee's movie, um, Inside Man. Yes. Okay. And, and normally yeah. he'd fly me to New York, but he said, no, man, you stay with your family in L.A. and I'm coming to you. And when he came to my apartment, man, he walked in the door. The first thing he said was, he didn't even say hi. He said, man, I'm doing a documentary on those levees and I'm going to give those people a chance to tell their story. And, you know, my respect for him went through the roof right at that moment, you know, and that's the most comprehensive thing I've ever seen done on all the cultures of New Orleans, you know, mm-hmm. and and to, 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 to watch it. You know, we were actually recording the music, The Inside Man. That's how he found out that my mom hadn't gone in the house yet. You know, I was out there. With ah, the- yeah, yeah, yeah. I come back in for a playback and then Spike goes, we're going to film you and your mom going in the house. I'm like, what? You know? And um, my mom said, well, people need to see what we're going through. You know what I mean? And uh, wow. that was one of the roughest things uh. to do with my mom because, you know, I'd went to the house the night before. Uh, I already knew what was up, what was going, was about to go down. And when she said, I hope my house is fine, it just broke, you know, breaks you up. She had a friend of hers who had come home Got out of his car, saw his house, and had a heart attack and died right in front of the house. Shit. You know what I mean? Mm. So there were a lot of stories like that that were going on. So when it came time to make the record, man, you know, I kept wondering if I was sounding angry because I was pissed. You know, I was just pissed. I kept being mm. pissed. I'm like, you know, they're, 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 this is America. This, this shit shouldn't happen. Who designed those levees? If it was one of us, we'd be in jail. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just that simple. You know, it's faulty design and people lost their lives because of it. And people lost their homes because of it. So I I kept trying to say to myself, don't sound angry, don't sound angry. But all of those stories, all of those arrangements are kind of based off of stories that happened, you know, during that period. And 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 one of the, the blessed things about it is that once we did it and recorded it, you know, and, and released it, man, this one guy came to one of our shows and he said, man, um, he said, I lost my best friend in Katrina. And he said, I wasn't, wasn't able to mourn. And he said, 
And then, you know, they were having a memorial for him like a year afterwards. And Mm -hmm. he said, I put your album on. And as I was listening to it, he said, as I was pulling up to the church, Funeral Dirge started to play. And he said, I just lost it. And he said that was the first time he could ever mourn the loss loss Mm -hmm. of a friend. So, you know, when you hear stories like that, you know, you feel like that's why you create music to help people like deal with stuff, you know, and I, and I, and one of the things we kept saying with that album, one of the things we said with the breathless stuff with the gun violence, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. let the music absorb your, let the music absorb your frustration and pain, you mm. know, okay. but strategic about how we move forward, you know, and creating a more equitable life for us in this country. Mm. That's real. Well, I like thank that. you for sharing that, man. No, I thank appreciate you that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, on behalf of uh, Unpaid Bill, Sugar Steve, and Fontigolo, and Laia. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Flowers, flowers, flowers. Nah, flowers, yes. nah. Thank you for all you do, man. Yes. Like your music, <laughs> you. like all your music, it definitely becomes just like a whole nother character in all the movies that you do. And I watch them just as much for your music as I do <laughs> for yes. the movies. Yes. Like for real. That so, is nah, our truth, you do, Fonte. Brother. That is everybody's listening's truth. Thank you. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. I love what you guys do, man. So keep it up, man. Thank you. All right, right, this is Questlove, and uh, we'll see you on the next ground round of Questlove Supreme. Thank you. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte. Make sure you keep up with us on Instagram at QLS and let us know what you think and who should be next to sit down with us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. All right? Peace. Much Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.